in the book of Philippians, as you know, and probably, well, certainly one of my favorite passages in, in, in all of Scripture, I guess. It's, a, it's just an amazing, um, this beginning to, to chapter 2 is just one of the most amazing descriptions of all that Jesus Christ has, has done for us. Now, Paul's, Paul's purpose in writing this letter has really been to, to plead with his Philippian friends to love each other with the same love that they have for God. It's also that they have the same respect for one another that they have for Paul. But Paul's also writing to bring encouragement to the Philippians who are actually enduring suffering something that Paul knows about only too well. In fact, it's because he identifies with them that he's able to speak both with joy and with encouragement into their situation, into, into their lives. As we heard last week in, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 27, that to encourage them to be men and women worthy of the gospel by standing firm in one spirit against opposition. So let's read. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of God the Father. The beginning of chapter 2 is, is so intricately linked into the last paragraph of, of chapter 1, verse 27 to 30. And what Paul is saying here in verse 1, he's saying is, in the light of everything that I have just said to you, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. So in the light of the fact that, we, that suffering is normal, this is, suffering is part of the deal, as we talked about last week, of being a Christian, we need to be single-minded in Christ. 
because he is the only one who can enable us to have joy in the middle of battle, to produce within us this, this, this consistent, godly character and confidence and teamwork as we, as we work together for, for the faith of the gospel. And Paul points us to Jesus. Once again, he's pointing us to Jesus Christ. Now, we, we are fortunate, are we not, that we don't face the same level of persecution that the Philippians faced, or certainly that, that Paul faced, but, but each one of us deal with our own level of pain and suffering within our lives, and, and, and some of you do really know what it means to suffer. And if you're going through a difficult, hard time at the moment, perhaps this passage is particularly for you. <laughs> Paul's amazing, isn't he? He's just incredible. He's joyful. He's encouraging, even in the middle of suffering. Now, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. And I know what I'm like when I'm going through a particularly difficult time. Joyful is not the word you'd probably use about me in those moments, if I'm honest. In fact, I find it all too easy to begin to point the finger at God or try and blame somebody else. The story of a family who were who were going to a party one evening. It was a dark night in the middle of, of rural Northern Ireland. And as they drove along those country roads, nobody could have possibly guessed how that evening was, was going to end. As they turned round a corner in the road, the road was blocked as a tree had fallen across their path. This was IRA country, so it's a place you didn't take your chances. So the driver, as soon as he saw the tree, he put the car into reverse and he began to back away from it fairly quickly. As soon as he did, there was a sound of gunfire. And within seconds, that car was riddled with bullets. Miraculously, nobody was killed that evening. But it was literally a bloody mess. The story behind that was that police had been tipped off about the possibility of an IRA gang coming through, perhaps with weapons, so they, 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 they thought they'd set up an ambush. They felled the tree in the road. And when this car pulled up to this tree they, and, and saw it backing away, they thought the worst, and they, they opened fire, shooting on four innocent, sorry, five innocent brothers and sisters, leaving them both physically and emotionally wounded, two of them spending weeks critically ill in intensive care. I tell that story because it, it happened over 50 years ago now, and those young people are now in their, in their 70s. But the remarkable thing is this, that out of the folks in that car, two of them have spent their lives as missionaries, one in South America, the other in Africa. The rest of them have served God in local churches down through the years. How do I know? Because one of them was my mum, and the rest, my aunts and uncle. And if you were to go to them and ask them about those events, they probably wouldn't tell you much about them. They wouldn't really want to talk about them. But if you're to say to them, don't you blame God for what happened all those years ago? They would say, no. We have seen how God has been gracious and loving and God is merciful 
And God has given us far more than anything that we could ever deserve. Listen, it's against this backdrop of pain and suffering and tragedy that Paul's writing. And as we look at this passage, I want to base it and hang it on, on four ifs. Four questions. What if? The first one is this. What if we were to be single-minded about Jesus? There's a real sense here in, in that, that all of, of, of chapter one has been building up to this point and all that we have said and, and spoken about over the last few weeks. In fact, all that we are going to say is grounded in Jesus. If you were to ask Paul, what is the secret to joy within your life? I think perhaps he would say, read verse five. Have a look at verse five. You say, act like Jesus. Be single-minded about Jesus Christ. Have his mindset. And, and, and so in verse 6, he launches into this magnificent and amazing description of Jesus Christ that's just full of contrasts. We see, we see how Christ's mindset is expressing itself. It's expressed both as, as God in verse 6, but also as man in verse Eight. And as God, he humbles himself and he becomes, and he takes on the form of a slave. As man, he pours himself out and he becomes obedient to death. And there's this stark contrast here between Christ's divine power and just sheer emptiness. And Jesus who is equal with God, the one who is the creator of all things, the one who is Lord over every kingdom of this world and every nation of this world, the one that the very angels of heaven just worship and adore, but also the one in which the very the demonic forces and the evil forces of this world just run at the very mention of his name. He is the one who left the glory of heaven and came down to the most lowliest of places. It was because of love for you that he left heavenly riches and he took on earthly poverty. And the example that Jesus calls us to, it's a call to servanthood, to self-sacrifice, to this submissive mind for the sake of others. And his humility, his dedication, his obedience is a mark of his true greatness. And by contrast, it's, it's, it's a mark of our utter weakness and selfishness and sinfulness that we struggle so hard to be any of these things. The problem is that from the very first man who ever lived, from Adam right down to you and me today, we want to look after number one, pride. It sort of dominates our lives, and it may have been Adam and Eve who first sinned, who first listened to the lie of Satan, because they wanted power. They wanted to be like God, but the truth is we're not that much different, at least if we're sort of half honest with ourselves. We want to be in charge. We want to be sort of little gods in our own little worlds because really it's, it's all about me. 
In fact, you just flip your televisions on for a few minutes and listen even just to the adverse, never mind to the programs, and, and you'll be told the message you're bombarded with is actually if you want happiness, you need to be drinking the right beers or wearing the right deodorant or, or have a little bit more money or, or, or just more possessions, and, and that's going to bring you happiness. Trouble is, it doesn't because enough is never enough. And we will discover that temporary happiness actually destroys our joy. Jesus did the opposite, the complete opposite. The one who is God, in fact, became man. And in verse 7, he says, he emptied himself. He simply pours himself out. He made, him, he made himself nothing. He takes on the qualities of a slave. There's no greater expression of love. Isaiah writes almost 500 or so years before this in Isaiah 53 verse 12, talking about Jesus. He said, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, with the sinners, for he bore the sins of many and he made intercession for the transgressors, for the sinners. The truth is that Jesus suffered more than anybody has ever suffered. He was subjected to the most cruelest of deaths. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was tortured to the inch of his life. And then, after all of that, he's nailed to, he's nailed to a wooden cross. But the Bible tells us that on Jesus was placed the sins of this world. On the perfect Son of God, the sins of this world were placed, and Jesus Christ died for your sin in your place. It is a divine scandal that the creator of everything, that the one who is Lord over all is put to death at the hands of those he created. But that is how much he loves you. Of course, the story doesn't end with Jesus' death because we have a risen Savior who is alive today. And as Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he dealt a death blow to sin and to Satan, which one day is going to reach this magnificent climax when Jesus Christ comes back again. And in verse 9 to 11, Paul tells us that God exalted Jesus to the very highest of places. In fact, he gave him a name that is above every other name, a name that is reserved for God alone. He calls him Lord. It's also the name that was reserved by the Romans to see for Caesar. And I don't think it's any accident that Paul uses this particular name here as he writes to this community who is suffering under Roman occupation. And Paul wants them to know that there is only one Lord and his name. His name is not Caesar. His name is Jesus. 
Jesus is the center of everything, past and present and future. And listen, whatever your circumstances, Jesus Christ is in control. He is sovereign over all. He is Lord over everything, over all heavenly, over all heavenly beings, over angels, over demons, over everything that is alive today, even those things that are already dead. In other words, there is nothing and there is no one that is beyond his sovereign authority. So listen, folks. There is such an encouraging promise of future glory and joy that is mentioned so often within this letter. That those who follow Jesus' humble example and by faith accept them as Lord of their life will one day enter into his presence and those who suffer with Christ will one day walk worthy of him and be transformed into his likeness. And all those who love Jesus have the certainty that they will live with him in heaven. Until then, we struggle in an imperfect world, but we long for the day in which he will return. So what if... What if we were to be single-minded for Jesus and to have a submissive mind like Jesus now? How would that change our community? How would it change our church? How would that change you? The second what if is what if we were to live with confidence in God's love for us. You will have noticed, or you may have noticed here, that God is not mentioned, not directly, but sitting between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God's love is implied. And I think it's, it's fairly obvious, I think impossible to miss Paul's intentional reference to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this call again to this single-minded, to have this one focus Perhaps the question we need to be asking ourselves is, where is your confidence? Where do you find your comfort? Now, the place that you find that is, is probably the place that you tend to go when, when life gets difficult, when things become hard within your life. We should be turning to Jesus, to God. And the place that we find God truly reveals himself, perhaps more than anywhere else, is on the cross. It's there that we discover that God is love, and he has perfectly and completely revealed his love in sending Jesus. This is John 3.16. Once again, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not die, but have everlasting life. And all, all of what we have in Christ is initiated in a loving and through a loving God. Listen, that is where our confidence lies. It has to be. There's the only place that we can find absolute security in and through Christ. And, and we come to Almighty God with boldness and with confidence and listen, even if you feel damaged or, or broken, or maybe you feel that you haven't much left to give, to, to find hope for, the only place that you should be looking is Jesus, towards the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And at the cross, you will find love and acceptance and grace. And some of you just simply need to hear these three words. God loves you. God loves you. And you say, I, I, don't, I don't deserve his love. And in essence, you're right. You don't, none of us deserve his love. But his love is unconditional. He loves you. He, whatever you've done in the past, whatever you've been through this week, whatever challenges you've had to face, it doesn't change the fact he loves you. God loves you. Allow that to sink in. What if, what if we were to really grasp that and to allow it to shape our lives what difference would it make? The third what if. What if we were to share every experience in partnership with the Holy Spirit? This again links back into the previous chapter to, verse, to uh, Philippians 1 verse 27 where it says where we are told to stand firm in one spirit. Listen, it's the Holy Spirit that puts us in Christ. It's by the Spirit that we, that we know God's love. And as we'll see in a few moments, it's also by the Holy Spirit that we are empowered to love one another. And the example that we follow once again, is that of Jesus. Jesus Christ lived his life completely filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, many people tend to, to shy away from the, from the Holy Spirit. They're quite comfortable with, with, with God the Father and, and, and Jesus as the Son. But, but the Holy Spirit, sometimes people tend to, to pull back a little bit, just a little bit unsure. We shouldn't be. To be filled with the Spirit is simply this. is to be like Jesus. It's that simple. It's to live as Jesus lived, who was filled with the Spirit every single day. There is no man who was ever more filled than Jesus Christ. And our lives and our church, our community should be awash with the Holy Spirit. And I, I can't help but think that sometimes we just settle for, for just less. And how much more has God got in store for us? If we're truly open... It was at university that I began to discover the power of God and, and, and probably more specifically the work of the, the Holy Spirit. I'll be honest, it was a bit of a shock for me. I, I, I met these, these Spirit-filled Christians and I thought some of them were just plain weird. Discovered they were plain weird. It wasn't nothing to do with God. It was just, anyway, it's another story. So, and, but there was this slow awakening within me that God had just something more for me. And I began to pray for the baptism, for the filling of the Holy Spirit. And, and some time went by until one evening I'm praying with a friend in my room. And as we prayed, as he prayed with me, we asked God to pour out his Spirit. And I experienced the most dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit. I don't think I've experienced one quite as dramatic ever since. There have been times since when his presence has been incredibly intense on my life. But on that occasion, it just felt as if the whole room itself was shaken. And the weight of God's presence fell and the joy of God increased. And for some time, we praised and we sang and we, we, we just prayed together. I received a new language. The Bible describes it as the gift of tongues, a heavenly language, a prayer language, and a new direction, a new passion to see my fellow students come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And God moved in those days, and I am thankful for them. And there's been many markers in my life since then when God, by His Spirit, has turned up and just, just known His, His deep presence and His change within my, within my life. But I'm still hungry for more. I'm hungry for more of Him, for more of His Spirit. I long, I long to see miracles I long for the day when healings are just commonplace. I long that when we lay hands on the sick that they are healed. That's why we pray for Sue. That's why we're praying so, in, so intensely for her. We believe that God is a God who heals. But we long to see God's power poured out for people's lives to be changed as they encounter the gospel and the Holy Spirit. See, if we allow the Holy Spirit to shape every area of our lives... He is the one who's going to actually illuminate God's word for us. If you're struggling to read and to understand the scriptures, you go to the Holy Spirit, you pray, Holy Spirit, show me, open my eyes that I may understand, that I may see. He is the one who empowers us for our daily lives. He gives us the faith for healing. He makes us into a prophetic people, the people that we need to be. He's our guide, our, our comfort. But what if... What if we were to long for more of his presence? What if we were to passionately pray and expect him to come in power? What if we were to be radical, spirit-filled believers who were single-minded about him, who did not care so much what other people thought? What if? The last what if is this. What if we were to live in unity with other Christians and humbly love other people? In this last if, it's, there's a sort of a change of focus here, and it's towards our relationships with one another. And Paul pleads in verse 2 with the people he's writing to, to make his joy complete. This fourth if can only exist because of the other three. It's only when we are single-minded about Christ, only when we are confident in God's love, only when we are participating in the Spirit that we'll, we'll be able to find true unity and love for others. And Paul's conclusion is that it is God's compassion and God's mercy that will produce humility and unity within us. But you've got to get the other three right, or you will never get this one right. Because how can you put an optician and a mechanic or a teacher or a binman in the one room with absolutely nothing in common and expect them to get on? Actually, you can. If each of those people are in, each of those people are, I've got the single mind in Christ. And in fact, there's something seriously wrong with a church that if we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are encountering Jesus and overwhelmed by the grace of God, that it is not changing the way in which we behave to one another. The story is told by Ravi Zachariah. It's more of an illustration, really, because I don't think the story's actually true, but the man, a man is stranded on a desert island. 
rescue boat comes along, and as, he come, as the rescuers come in, they see three huts that are built on this island. And they, they, as they look at them, they, they ask the man the question, what are those huts for? What are those shacks all about? And the guy says, well, that one over there? He says, that's the one I've been living, that's my house. I've been living there for the last number of years. And he says, and, and, and that second one? He says, that's my church. And the, the rescuer says, well, what's the third one? Oh, he says, oh, that's the church that I used to go to. You know, there's some people who are so argumentative that they can even fall out with themselves and even leave a church that they're the only member in. I mean, the problem with unity, it's not so much the other person. The problem is what's going on inside of you. And true spiritual unity comes from within. It's a matter of the heart. So in verse 3, Paul is writing, he's warning about selfish ambition, about rivalry. He's actually referring back again to the previous chapter, to chapter 1, verse 17, where he's talking about these Roman um, Christians who are preaching Christ out of selfish motives. They want to get Paul into as much trouble as possible, if you remember that little, little section. But also these, these Philippians are, are facing this double threat towards the unity, false teaching coming in from outside, but then also this division and fighting that's going on within the church itself. And, and Paul is telling the church, he's saying, he says, your disagreements reveal there is an area of just spiritual problem in your church. That's actually, it's not going to be sorted by just rules or threats. It can only be solved when your hearts are right with Christ and with one another. And Paul wants them to see that the that the very basic cause of their problems, of this selfish ambition, this vain conceit, this rivalry that's going on, boils down to selfishness. And the very root of selfishness is pride. And we'd be fools to think that that could never affect my church or even me. And this struggle for self-control, or this, sorry, this struggle for control and for power is a dangerous one. Selfishness and conceit and manipulation just destroys churches. It, it erodes the ability to work together for the sake of the gospel. It simply dulls our witness. But most importantly, this attitude stands in the starkest contrast to the mindset of Jesus Christ. We've said the secret to joy in spite of our circumstances, is the single mind. However, the secret to joy in spite of people is the submissive mind. And Paul says in verses 3 to 4 that the way to true unity among believers is to put this safeguard in place, is to consider each other more important than yourself, is to care for others to put their needs ahead of ours. What Paul is not saying, he's not saying that other people are better than you. 
but that their needs are more important than your needs. And, and having this submissive mind doesn't mean that we are at other people's beck and call all the time, or that we become some sort of doormat that people just walk over, or even a certain sort of act to try and persuade friends or, or to, to build some unity just by giving in to everybody's wish or whim. That's not what Paul is talking about at all. He's saying, be like Jesus. Have the same servant-hearted view mindset as the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 puts it quite perfectly, for we preach not ourselves but Jesus Christ and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. What you do, you do for the sake of Jesus Christ. You live as a servant. You put other people's needs before yours because of Jesus. You learn to love humbly love others. And Paul's concern is that we are united in Christ by his Spirit. Only then can we hope to advance in our faith, but also advance in the gospel. So what if? What if we were to re-experience the love and encouragement that is ours through a loving God? What if we were to rethink our lives in Christ, in terms of our relationship with one another? What if we were to really allow the Holy Spirit to fill us completely? What if? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. What if we were to live like that. Let's stand and pray. Father, we, Father, we ask the questions, what if, what if we give everything for you and to you? What if our heart was completely given over to you what if we allowed you by your spirit into every area and every aspect of our lives, both together and separately? And Father, I just pray now as we, we bring things to a close, Holy Spirit, come and move. Holy Spirit, come and just reveal within our hearts and my heart and and my friends' hearts here, Lord, the areas that need to be dealt with, the, the situations that need to be confronted, the, the things we, we need to bring to the cross of Jesus once again. And we come as a repentant people, wanting to know more of you, wanting to be filled with your Spirit, wanting to be equipped for the mission that you've called us into. So, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, come. Come and move. 
from person to person. Come and move in this room. Come and bring your conviction, but only to make us more like you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit.